would open your Bible back to Psalm 96. And I want to divide Psalm 96 in, this, in these three ways. The imperative of praise, the importance of the church in accomplishing those same imperatives, and then the preeminence of Christ in it all. So if you look at Psalm 96, I want to read this psalm in its entirety, and I'll remind you of words that I rarely approach the psalms without the words of J.M. Boyce, who was, who is, gone on to be with the Lord now, but who was for many years the pastor of, or the senior minister of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he followed in the steps of men like Donald Gray Barnhouse. And there's a great list of names of men who have served that church, that particular church as a pastor. But James Boyce has written a commentary on the Psalms. And in the preface to that commentary, he says this. I've always thought of the Psalms as the deepest and most spiritual portion of the Word of God. The Psalms themselves speak so powerfully to the hurts, fears, disappointments, faith, hope, and aspirations of the people of God. If you've ever experienced, and I'm sure you have, if you've been a Christian long at all and have turned to the Psalms for comfort and solace, and you've experienced the truth of what he writes here, they speak so powerfully into the very part of life that we find ourselves in. Are you grieving? David knew grief. Are you troubled? David knew trouble. Are you glory, glorying and joyful in the Lord? David knew those two. And of course, David is not the only author of the Psalms. There are others. He dominates that, this portion of the scriptures, no doubt. So if you'll follow along as I read, First of all, we're going to read about the imperative of the people of God praising the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among the peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Let then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness 
and the peoples with his truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in understanding these verses rightly. We pray the Spirit of God would come and apply them to our hearts. And to the praise and honor of Jesus and into his name we pray. Amen. Most likely you have a reference in your Bible that would point you back to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. So I want you to go back there with me quickly. The reason we're pointed here is because the second half of 1 Chronicles 16 is repeated in Psalm 96, almost verbatim. If you were to read verses 23 through 33 of 1 Chronicles 16, almost word for word of the 96th Psalm. It's helpful when we see the context of this particular Psalm in its original place here in 1 Chronicles 16. And the context is, in verse 1 there, the bringing of the ark of God into the tabernacle. The ark of the covenant finding its, its home and its resting place in the tabernacle that David had erected. I want to read a few verses here. The first four verses, then verses 7 through 15. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both of man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister the ark of the Lord before the ark of the Lord to commemorate to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And then he enlists certain men to lead in that. If you go down to verse 7, it says, On that day David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. This is what he says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works, which he has done before. His wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. And if you skip all the way over to the 36th verse of this same chapter, he ends this psalm of thanksgiving by saying, And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. This is after David says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. That's an important thing to note as we study Psalm 96, because in its original setting there in 1 Chronicles 16, it was based upon the Ark of the Covenant being placed in the tabernacle. 
Many see, as I do, Psalm 96 as being a great messianic psalm. And in that sense, it is a view of Christ, the true Ark of the Covenant, being placed in his rightful place of worship, not this time in a tabernacle that pointed to his glory, but in the midst of his church that comprises his glory, that speaks forth his glory. And so really we have the same thing in view, whether it's First Chronicles or Psalm 96, the true ark of God being placed in its true and rightful place to be recognized in the worship of God's people. That's why this psalm speaks of the imperative of praise and the importance of the church in accomplishing that imperative. Lord willing, he's going to help us see that out of this psalm. Verses 1, 2, and 3 make up this imperative of praise or what we might term a stirring call to worship. And this call to worship is to sing to the Lord a new song. It's interesting that even if you go into the book of Revelation twice, we find the redeemed of God, the church triumphant, singing a new song unto the Lord. And in those instances, it's not the words so much that are new. It's with those words being sung with a renewed heart. Several times this morning we sang about the new mercies of God. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3 tells us that the mercies and compassions of God are made new to us every morning. Every morning that you live here upon this earth, and I don't think it wrong to say, though I realize time is far different in glory, but every renewed conscious thought of God's having been merciful to us is fitting when we attach to it This new song. Let me say it this way. The new song is in thanks and gratitude for the new mercies that we've received. The words may be familiar or they may be new. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they correspond to the truth and they are being sung out of a heart that has experienced and is thankful and intent upon expressing gratitude to God for new mercies. You know, the scripture tells us that the Lord knows our frame, that we are but dust. And it's fitting for him to renew his mercies to such a fragile people every morning. A new dispensation, a new measure of grace for every day. That's why we are called to sing a new song. David Dixon in his commentary on the Psalms says this, We need again and again and again to be stirred up to joy in Christ, to praise Him. For we are dull And the work we are called to is excellent. No man discharges this duty sufficiently. Therefore, it is said three times over in this psalm, in the first two verses, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. 
We looked at something very similar last Wednesday evening before our prayer meeting. And I said then, I'll repeat here now, you cannot read the scriptures without recognizing and seeing that the people of God are called to be a singing people. That's just a great expectation of scripture. One of the preeminent ways that we as the people of God worship is through singing. And ascribing to the Lord the glory that is do him. So in verses 1 and 2, notice it's not just the three times over call to sing to the Lord. The second verse also says proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. And it's particularly in this psalm where we began to pick up on what we might call New Testament language in this psalm. This psalm being messianic, yes, and that it is looking forward to Christ's first coming when he would come and accomplish the things that are mentioned here in this psalm. But I suppose it's also right. It is right for us to see it also as an expectation and a look forward to his second coming as well, particularly when we get toward the end of this psalm. We are to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day and declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. You understand, as I do, that God of the the God of the scriptures, as he has revealed himself to us, is unique in every way. There is nothing else, no one else like him. That's why verse four gives us this statement. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Notice the correlation. Why are the people of God called to greatly praise the Lord? Because the Lord is great. That's the great affirmation that we make over and over and over again in our worship. In some way or another, we are declaring the greatness of the Lord. That His ways are indeed not ours. That He is high above us. That He is the Creator. We are the creature. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Now let me ask you a simple question of application. Just as I ask myself, is this a fitting description? of your reason for being here this morning. This is reason enough. If you awoke this morning intent upon assembling with the people of God to greatly praise Him because He is great and He has bestowed wondrous benefits upon you, then your heart is in a good place. Your heart is in a tender place before God. You are in a, in a proper perspective and relationship before him. But admittedly, far too often, just as David Dixon says, we are dull. Even though the work is excellent, that we are called to and we need to be stirred over and over and over again to this great work of praising greatly our great God. He is to be feared above all gods. This is not a recognition of other gods. It's a refutation of them. 
There are no other gods like he in the scriptures. Notice how, how the psalm says that in verse 5. All the gods of the people, peoples are idols. Isaiah tells us and other places tell us that men are prone, whether it is under the new covenant, the new, old covenant, new covenant, it doesn't matter. Men are prone naturally to form and to fashion idols for themselves, sometimes going so far as to carve them out and to place them somewhere where they can be seen and to bow to them, supposing that they are an idol. But notice the contrast between these idols of the peoples and the Lord, whom the psalm says made the heavens and the earth. Idols are fashioned and shaped by men to their own liking. The true God, just the opposite, creates, fashions men to his own liking. You see the difference? An idol is something that we set up and we make it just like we want it and we worship it. And you are fooling yourself as I am if we think that the only idols that exist are those things that some people might place upon a mantle in worship. I don't remember who said this, but but the saying goes something like this. The heart of man is an idol factory. Always churning out some different type of an idol. Always desiring to fall down before it and worship. But the creating God, the great God of verse 4, is just the opposite. He creates and fashions and shapes men and the hearts of men for his own liking, for his own glory. And I want you to notice in verse 6, because we're moving to that second point. The first point being the imperative of praising this great God. The second point being the importance of the church in accomplishing this. We're moving in that direction in verse 6. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Notice the words of verse 6. Honor, majesty, strength, beauty. Are before him and in his sanctuary. Listen to this mouthful again from David Dixon out of his commentary on the Psalms. He says, The power and glory of God are not rightly seen either to God's praise or of man's salvation except by his own or through his own ordinances in his church, where he himself is both teacher and the substance of what is being taught. Strength and beauty Glory and majesty and honor reside in his sanctuary. What is he saying? He's saying that God is greatly known and praised in the midst of his people. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. And if there's any recoil within us against that, then we need to deal with it. I realize we live in a highly individualistic society. Oftentimes when we read the, 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 the verses that declare our great salvation, we take those and have an immediate application, totally distancing them from 
the redeemed of God, let me remind you that when you read the word church in the New Testament, the very definition of the word is a gathering of people. It is an assembly of people. And it is an assembly that have been called out of the world and called unto Christ to do the very things that we are reading here in Psalm 96. And so right here, this psalm begins to show us that the honor, the majesty, the strength, and the beauty of God are best seen where they most gloriously reside. Old covenant, sanctuary. New covenant, church. This call to praise goes on in verse 7. These are the words we read earlier. These are what we might call the directives of worship. First, ascribe or give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Have you ever pondered on that? How can we as mere men, we, we speak of our weaknesses so often. How can I give the Lord strength? He is all-powerful already. He is omnipotent, accomplishing whatever He will. How is it that I am called to give to the Lord glory and strength? I think it's far more simple than we would like for it to be. I mentioned earlier that the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, calls us to the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice is by nature something that costs us, right? Sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the lambs were to be perfect, spotless, spotless, unblemished, the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Why? They were costly. And it was the great rebuke of, of the prophets to the people who began to bring the lame, the weak, the blind, the crippled, the sick to sacrifice them because they cost them nothing. They were going to die anyway. But to bring the best costs. To come to the Lord with glory and strength and to offer unto the Lord the best of your strength, the best of the work of your hands, the best of your time, the best of your resources, And to have a good stewardship before the Lord is going to cost you a measure of your own strength. And we give it to the Lord gladly. Or at least we should. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. And there again, we might faint in the expectation. How can I give the Lord the glory due His name? We do so as we continually, repeatedly gather ourselves together in an assembly of the saints, in His church, and sing praise unto Him. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Give the Lord the glory do his name. The word glory here, you probably know, denotes a weight. That's why sometimes the King James would say the weight of glory. And that's particularly where the word strength comes in. 
If we are to ascribe to the work to the Lord the glory that is due him, then there is a weight of that glory which requires strength in the offering to him. These are the things that are required of us. Verse 8 says also, bring an offering and come into his courts. We, we wrongly and far too easily keep this in the realm of finances. In bringing an offering. We accept tithe and offerings in the plates in the back of the sanctuary. But this is in view of the offering of the praise that is being called for over and over and over again in this psalm. Do so as you come into his courts. Now, I want you to make these connections with me. I want you to notice in verse 6 the word sanctuary. I want you to notice in verse 8 the word courts. Both of those would have readily to the Jewish mind and anyone who studies the Old Testament, both of those would have readily and easily be seen as references either to the tabernacle or later the temple of God, the sanctuary of God, the holy of holies, if you would, and then the courts, the inner, the outer courts of the temple. I also want you to notice and throw into that equation, verse 9, the beauty of of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now again, I realize at first reading, because of our individualistic mindset, we're going to read that and say that I as an individual should worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And there is some truth in that. I'm not denying that at all. We best worship the Lord when we are practicing with help of the Spirit through mortification of sin, when we are growing in the likeness of Christ and increasing in sanctification and becoming more and more like Christ. When we are walking in holiness, we are best glorifying and honoring the Lord. But I don't think that's what is primarily in view in verse 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, in the sanctuary, in his courts, where his honor, majesty, strength, and beauty are most gloriously displayed in his church. This is the beauty of holiness. The redeemed assembly of the people of God This is not to say, nor am I trying to say, that you cannot worship God outside of the meeting of the church. Surely you can, and we must. Whatever our hand finds to do, we're to do it with all of our might, as unto the Lord. But what I am saying is, if we are to know, let me rephrase that, what the scripture is saying, if we are to know the greatest displays of the honor, majesty, strength, and beauty of God, he will make those known most gloriously in his church, to his church. And we might go so far as to say what Spurgeon would say, and he would say something like this, when the church is functioning as the church should, when it is ordering itself according to the New Testament pattern, What we find there is heaven on earth. How many of your experiences with church life would you define as being heaven on earth? 
Some of us has some of us have far too many of the other kind of experiences, don't we? There's a reason for that. Which I'm going to get to here in just a moment. Let me just get to it now. I'm going to walk a path here with you that I walk fairly often. And it's not because I don't have anything else to say. There's a lot that could be said. The reason I talk about this so often is because it seems like everywhere I turn in the scriptures most recently, it's there. And I only bring it up now because it's here. And the path that I want to walk with you is to point out and to show and to remind that as believers, we are to highly prize the church of Jesus Christ. Think of all the descriptions that the New Testament uses to speak of the church. The bride of Christ being the preeminent one. How could we despise or hold in low esteem what the scriptures call the very bride of Christ? The sheep of God, the flock of God, the building of God. We don't often prize the church as we should because we only are far too often, and I'm please, I'm including myself in this. We far too often view the church from an individualistic perspective, and we ask questions like, What does the church have for me? What do I, how do I benefit? How do I profit? from meeting and assembling with the saints of God. If there is not some immediate felt benefit for me, then it's not worth my time. We view the church from this perspective when we see it primarily as a redeemed group of people still acting out their sinfulness in relation to one another. That happens. We sin against one another. That's why we are called in Scripture to forbear, to forgive, to do all of these types of things. And when we begin to view the church as only from an individual perspective and not as the church is a gathering and assembly, members being fashioned and formed and placed as God sees fit. That's Paul's language into his letter in the first Corinthians. When we begin to see it more so in that light, we begin to see it as a people whom he gave his son for. A people being prepared even now for the second coming of his son. A people who were called to with great unity, bless and praise the Lord. A people dependent upon the Lord and even upon one another. A people equipped to minister to one another and serve one another, a people, though struggling with remaining sin, have been declared righteous in his sight. That's seeing the church not from an individual perspective, but from the perspective of Scripture and how the Lord views the church. How does Peter say it? His own special people. Who have been called out of darkness into light, 
so that they may proclaim the praises of him who have accomplished these great things for us. I've had conversations like these where someone will tell me, I am the church. How would you respond? The right response is humbly, graciously, and Lord willing, winsomely to say, no, you are not. You as an individual are not the church. You may be a part of the church. You may be, if you are in Christ through faith, you are a member of Christ's larger church, but you are not the church. And those are hard conversations. Because people who believe that believe it very strongly. And I realize even in that saying, there is a hint and an element of truth there. But it's with the proper perspective. Christ died for a people, not a person. And even there, if there's a little pushback in your heart against that statement, I realize there's a hint and a measure of truth in that. Christ died for me, yes, but greater beyond that. The scripture declares that he died for a people of which an individual is but one in that group of people. And to go back to the context of this psalm, the Lord makes himself most gloriously known, honor, majesty, strength, and beauty in the meeting of his people. As we live and move and have our being as being part of a local assembly. And I'm not saying just in the hour or two that we meet here in this building. Being a part of Christ's church, even a local church, goes far beyond that. I realize that. But he is making himself known in the relationships that comprise his people. David Dixon again. One sentence from him, among all of God's works, nothing is so beautiful as his ordinances rightly made use of in his church. Think about that. The ordinances, what what we call baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those were given not to me as an individual. Those were given to the church. Those are means of grace that Christ gave to his church. How are they best carried out? How do we best give obedience to those in the context of the church? There is safety in that. Abuse of these ordinances are held off and kept at bay when they are carried out under the authority of the church. Here is something that I have found over the last several years that not many people want to talk about at all, and that is the authority of the local church. If you have trouble with that phrase, I beg of you, go read the New Testament scriptures. And what you will find there is an order. God is a God of order, not of chaos. All things are to be done decently and in 
order. And when that order is as it should be, it's a glorious thing. Are there abuses in the authority of the church? Absolutely. Is that part of the reason why we shy away from the authority of the church as we see it in the New Testament? Yes, it is. But it's not reason enough to use the old proverbial phrase to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So often I find myself having to renew my mind or allow the Spirit of God to renew my mind as I think about the church of Jesus Christ. So much baggage that I have. Probably you carry the same type of baggage. Far too long in our society, we have not prized the church as highly as we ought. And maybe, perhaps even now as I'm saying that, there are some who still wonder, why does he harp on this over and over again? I do so because in my own thinking, and if you're honest, perhaps in yours, there is a deficiency there. That needs to be righted and it will only be righted as the authoritative truth of the scriptures comes home to us. These things are made known in his church. The beauty of holiness is a reference to the glorious beauty of Christ's church who will in the end be arrayed in white perfectly beautiful even now we are being washed with the water of the word and just one more thing before we move on and again I'll speak to myself as much as I speak to anyone here. When our church life or participation is centered around ourselves, there will never be contentment. Self will always want more. Self will want more recognition. Self will want to be served more. Self will want more of this. Self will want more of that. But when our participation is centered around the intent upon worshiping Christ and giving him the glory due his name, worshiping him in the beauty of holiness. There we can find great contentment. In 20 years of being a pastor, it's, hard, it's amazing that I can say that, but I can say that in truth, or I can say it in truth as of February of next year. In 20 years of being a pastor, it is those who are looking for a need to be met rather than looking to, need, looking to meet a need who grow discontent with the church. Let me say that again because I messed it up. It is those who are looking for a need to be met rather than looking to meet a need who grow discontent with the church. who grow discontent with the beauty of holiness, who grow discontent with this institution in which God most gloriously, gloriously manifests himself in the person of Christ. But let's move on to the 10th verse 
This is, we've seen the imperative of praise, the importance of the church in accomplishing those directives. Now we're going to see the preeminence of Christ in all things in verse 10. The great declaration that the people of God have is to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And that is not to be sheepishly said. That is not to be said in a way where we have to kind of, the Lord reigns. (laughs) No. The Lord reigns. He is sovereign. He is carrying out his works of providence even now. The Lord indeed reigns. The world also is firmly established. Now, wait a minute. You may be thinking, thinking, no, it's not. The world is in utter chaos. The world is spiraling out of control. Scripture says differently. It says the world is also firmly established. It shall not be moved. Why? Because the Lord is reigning. For us to agree with the common perception that the world is spiraling out of control would necessarily mean that we have forgotten the truth that our God reigns. That He is reigning over the affairs of men. And that what looks like chaos to us is really things marching right along to His prescribed manner. All things will be accomplished just as He so chooses. How could it be else? How could it be anything else than this if the Lord is reigning and indeed He is? Let the heavens rejoice. The earth be glad. Notice that even creation, whom we are told in Various places in the scripture, most notably in Romans chapter 8, even the creation is subjected to bondage. When Adam fell, creation itself was placed under a curse. But we know that creation is yearning, it's longing for the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And here there is a small picture of that given in the 11th verse. Let the heavens rejoice, the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness, let the fields be joyful and all that is in it, the trees and the, of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. There is a point in time when creation itself will be released from its subjugation into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And then I suppose the the reason for all of this, the foundation upon which it all rests is in verse 13, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. No one needs to wonder by what standard Will they be judged in the end? Those standards are firmly fixed. Righteousness and truth. 
He is coming to judge the world with righteousness. And if you are not found righteous, then he will stand before you as your judge. Thankfully, this judge has also become the justifier of men. Romans 3, 24. That he would be just and the justifier. This judge who will judge with righteousness has made the way of righteousness. We call it the imputation of righteousness, a big fancy word, which all it means is he will give you upon your faith in Christ the very righteousness of Christ. So when you stand before him as judge and he judges you with righteousness, what he will find is that you have been made righteous by the blood of his son. He will also judge the peoples with his truth. This is the standard. And please don't try to live up to every jot and tittle of it. You will miserably fail. There is one who has perfectly fulfilled every righteous requirement of a holy God, and he is Jesus. Who has become for us the righteousness of God. Will you be found in him on that day? In the meantime, do we understand the imperative to praise, the important place of the church of Jesus Christ in fulfilling those imperatives? The preeminence of Christ in it all, in the seriousness of judgment. I pray that God will, by His Spirit, through the truth of His Word, reveal to your heart where you stand today, this day of salvation, rather than in that day. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this psalm. Thank You for the truth of it. And Lord, we want to be more obedient to the call to praise, the call to sing unto the Lord, the call to give the Lord the glory due. Lord, we want the glory more in your church. Help us in that regard. Our views of the church, your, your bride, that institution for which Christ came, He bled, He died, He suffered agony. Our views are far too low. Help us to see the beauty of holiness that comprises your called out people. Those who are called to be saints. Called to be separate from the world. Lord, in place in our mouths, the willingness to share the good news of Christ, to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, to declare amongst the nations and the peoples that it is the Lord that is reigning Lord, help us as a feeble, weak people to grow in strength, to grow in understanding, most of all to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen.